0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast.
1: It was a busy day at Hamilton City Hall yesterday. The uh, city has uh, issued a statement saying that it will not engage in talks about obtaining a professional soccer team until it resolves its lawsuits around the issues with Tim Horton's field. Uh, We all know what's causing that and the litigation that's going back and forth on this. So where does this leave the city? Where does this leave the Tiger Cats? And what about that soccer team that uh, Bob Young had talked about a few months ago? Lloyd Ferguson, the counsel for Ancaster, uh, Ward 12, of course, is uh, the chairman of the stadium subcommittee. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to try to add some clarity to this situation. Good morning, Lloyd. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Bill. Listen, I know that uh, that some of this uh, discussion yesterday took place in camera behind closed doors, and, and there are legal matters here, so uh, there, uh, we've got to tread lightly here as to what we can say and what we can't say about this. But give us a, maybe a brief rundown as to where the city is right now, Lloyd. Well, I appreciate you having understanding
2: that, uh, and the lawyers made it incredibly clear to us again that we cannot discuss the details of the offers and counteroffers that have gone on because it will impair the, the litigation. But where we're at now, we have a policy that's been in place for a long time. In fact, it was here when I come on council, so I suspect it was here when you were on council that we don't do business with people who are in litigation with the city. And the principal reason behind that, and it and it's worked quite well, is that it puts more tension on the parties to settle, and uh, and 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 so uh, we have a a standing offer out there with the Ty Cats, and you know, quite frankly, I think you and your listeners would be surprised if you do the numbers, and uh, but it's been uh, it's not accepted by yet by the Ty Cats, but as soon as they do, as soon as we can come to settlement, then by all means uh, we'll
1: engage in talks with them for soccer. All right, and again, I I know you can't get too deeply into the numbers and and what's involved in this. But uh, I, I have heard, uh, these are unconfirmed reports, and I tried to get some information for the Tiger Cats. They didn't want to talk about this. I tried to talk to somebody at the province. But somebody who is in in the know, shall we say, has told me that there was an offer to settle, and the city's the one that's holding this process up right now. It's not the Tiger Cats and not the province.
2: Well, we can always go into this cross-pushing contest. We made what we think is a very good offer to them, and, and they declined it. And quite frankly, uh, it's not the city's really to settle. We are, we're not the the uh, contracting authority, Uh, we did not have the the relationship with the contractor that was late. That was Infrastructure Ontario. And uh, we have a clear understanding in our license agreement with the Tiger Cats that uh, since they don't have a contractual relationship with Infrastructure Ontario, they would channel any uh, claims they have through us, and we're simply a conduit to pass it on to the province. So it's impossible for us to be holding it up because we're just taking it from the left hand and putting it in the right hand and handing it over to the people that we have a contractual relationship. We also, as a city, don't have a contractual relationship with the uh, Ontario uh, Sports Solutions, the contractor. So
1: that is absolutely false. Uh, How can we hold it up if it's not our decision? If that's the case, then, if you're just a flow-through agency, then why are you uh, holding up the process then? It seems like you and the Tiger Cats are on the same side here. Well, unfortunately, we're both caught
2: out here because of what happened with the contractor. It's ultimately the contractor, and both of us are a long ways away from him. We have to go through the province. But I, I think, uh, you know, we're putting just as much tension, believe me, on the infrastructure Ontario in this matter. And it's just important that we uphold our policy not to do business with people who are new business, with people who are in litigation with us. We're not going to Hold up the Tiger Cats playing there. Uh, we have a licensing agreement that's uh, underway. Uh, the licensing agreement did uh, discuss soccer, but that expired in May 2016 with the Tiger Cats. So we don't have an agreement with the Tiger Cats right now. But it's it's just a, a, another tool in the toolbox to try to get both
1: parties together. If there's enough tension on both sides, it'll it'll bring a quicker resolution. But but again, I want to go back to the point you just made, though, Lloyd. That that technically you are acting on the Tiger Cats' behalf, in other words, to try to, to, to receive costs in this situation here. So it doesn't seem as if this is an adversarial relationship, legally, anyway. Well,
2: as long as both sides are being reasonable. And I, I know we can have different interpretations of reasonable. But I wish I could tell you the number. I can't. But you can use your imagination as to they missed three games. And, and uh, what's it, what would they have lost by not having that stadium for three games is really what it comes down to. And, uh, you know, that's all very public information that they had to play three uh, games over at uh, McMaster. Um, they were supposed to be at the of the year before, which they were, and they agreed to that to go up to Guelph. And so use your imagination as to what a real number should be. And, uh, you know, I... I uh i knew this question would come up and i really encouraged our communication staff and our lawyers let's just put some guideline numbers out there just so the public knows because it is it is public money whether it's uh, municipal money or provincial money the province won't move in their position either and and so we're just the meat in the sandwich and so we're telling both parties we're not going to do business with anybody that's in, that's suing us that's just good business practice and uh so, and so we're council in its wisdom, decided to hold firm on that.
1: Well, you're doing business with the province, Harry. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, well, there's a billion we, dollars flowing here for a, a transportation system. I would think that's doing business with them. So it seems somewhat well, hypocritical doing, here. Uh, you but, seem to uh, apply it sometimes and sometimes not.
2: We're not doing business with infrastructure, Ontario. We're doing business with MetroLinks.
1: And and, and well, that's semantics, that semantics,
2: isn't it? It may be semantics. It yeah, sure it is. But but it's the reality. And and uh, uh, Bill, if I could. Darn well explain to you what the numbers are, you'd have a whole different view in this, but I can't
1: well, why can't you then if they are if this our public... But this is public money I
2: yeah, know it is now you're making my arguments at a committee yesterday and 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 the public has a right to know but the, any time there's litigation involved we're told, they're told that this there's a hush agreement to this and it could impair the litigation, and it'll all come out eventually, just like uh, police investigations there's a lot of pressure to uh, release information before the investigation is complete. Uh, but it, believe me, it will all be public once this thing is either settled amicably between the parties or uh,
1: the courts decide. And, and listen, I understand because I mentioned this off the top of our conversation, Lloyd. I'm, I'm, I, I, you're the guy who came forward, and I, I appreciate you doing that. There are others that wouldn't do this, i got to tell you. Uh, and we have tried to approach other sides in this issue is to try to come forward on this, and, and not too many people seem to want to talk about this. But, and I understand also that as a city councillor, you have to abide by the legal advice that you get when you go into these sessions. And, and whether, you know, it's good advice or not, I guess we'll make that judgment at some point in the future. But I see some of the statements that were made yesterday by staff, not by the politicians, but by the staff. Uh, and it says here, the city was not responsible for the construction of the stadium. We know that. Uh, confident in its position in litigation is committed to ensuring no additional cost for the stadium be passed on to taxpayers. It hasn't cost us a nickel yet. Well, it's cost the taxpayers, provincial taxpayers, but no, well it, well,
2: it did. You know, we put forty-five million dollars. Well, of course,
1: from the future fund, the- we get that. But you have always maintained, and every time you've come on this program during those negotiations, during the construction, such as it was, that uh, don't worry about it. This is not going to have an impact on property taxes. this was all the future fund money, and the holdback is what's paying for all the repairs that are being done right now. So this hasn't cost us anything. So it's not as if we're we're in peril here as taxpayers, are we? No, and, and I, you're right. I have made that very clear, and the reason I made it very clear is because it's
2: clear in the licensing agreement, which is a public document, that uh, we will, if, if the stadium is late, the Tiger Cats can pursue litigation against the city, and we're going to pass it through to the province, and uh, we do not have to pay the Tiger Cats any more than the
1: province will pay us. It's that simple. And and uh, but uh, So you want this to be a zero-sum game, then? Well, it has to be. That's the city's position. Correct. Okay, without getting into numbers, that's that's basically the position right now. You want to to make sure that you guys come out of this at zero. You're not looking to make money on this, or are you? No,
2: no, not at all. We want to make sure we have enough funds to, to clean up the deficiencies, and that's pretty much done
1: now. And you are looking to get that money from whom? Uh,
2: the people we have a contract with, which is Infrastructure Ontario. They're looking to extract it from their contractor who they have a contractual relationship with.
1: So you're not suing the Tiger Cats? Uh, no. No, we're defended. And you're the, and the Tiger Cats are not, technically, they're not suing you. They're absolutely suing us. They're Well, yeah, but you just said you're just trying to get the cost back f- f- for them through Infrastructure Ontario. That's correct. Well, But we are in the statement of claim.
2: This is complicated, Bill. It's very complicated. It's very complicated. Uh, maybe I should not have come on the show because it's tempting to, to, to tell you more. But at the end of the day, uh, uh, you'll be very surprised when you hear the numbers. It's the best I can do.
1: Are, are, are you in negotiations right now? Are you even talking? Oh, yeah. are, are the parties involved in any oh, yeah. sort of it, discussion here? Absolutely. The lawyers are always talking to each other. How close are you?
2: Uh well. That's like saying do you like the picture on the wall. Everybody has a different definition of what close is, so I, I don't really want. But to you can to stay
1: that. categorically uh, to, to the rumors that I had talked about and that I had heard over the last couple of days that there was no deal on the table that the city turned down. Is that what you're the, saying?
2: The city doesn't turn anything down. It's infrastructure and terror we pass it through to.
1: Was there an offer on the table that offered a, a cash settlement that uh, that? But that might have resolved this situation. Has there any, has any anything come forward right now that you could give a thumbs up or thumbs down to? I mean, obviously, you're going to have some say in this.
2: Oh yeah, there's been offers made,
1: but Where not you, not there, suitable as far as the city is concerned.
2: No, the city was was satisfied with it.
1: So that's contrary to what I heard then. That the city is not holding things up. The city was the one that actually thought thought it was a good deal. Correct. Okay, let me ask you about this then, because. What I'm also hearing is that the city is using this as leverage—the uh, the soccer situation, the stadium situation—to try to get some resolution to this deal. Is—is is that true?
2: I said that right at the start. The reason that we don't do business, with people who are suing us, is to try to put take attention level up. And uh, you know, we quite often have contractors who don't perform properly, and and uh, you know, the very contractor that built that stadium, we banned him too because we're in litigation through infrastructure Ontario. That's Canadian. They were shortlisted a bit on the Woodward Avenue sewage Treatment plant. We said we won't do business with you while we're in litigation.
1: All right. Let me uh, ask you something else about this, which is marginally less controversial, I think. Uh, This idea about this agreement to bring a soccer team into the city right now. Uh, Bob Young talked about that when this whole deal was struck. Uh, The city's position right now is that that has expired. The Tiger Cats take exception to you. I would think, Lloyd that if that was part of an agreement, somewhere in that agreement, there is a clause in there that gives a a best before date. Uh, Was there, or is this a handshake agreement? Because there seems to be some discrepancy about whether or not this was expired. The Tiger Cats don't think there was any expiration date on that deal. It's clear in the
2: license agreement, the date, and that's a public document.
1: There is a date there that says, as of last summer, that that that, that becomes null and void. May 2016 expires. Okay, so that's, that's, that's settled then. All right. So where do we go from here? And, and in a related story now, we're finding out that if, in fact, uh, Canada's attempt to get a World Cup uh, a bid here uh, is not going to include Tim Horton Field, which I find rather frustrating, uh, given the fact that uh, when this stadium was constructed, it was very much built along the lines of FIFA recommendations and FIFA uh, criteria to make it eligible for this. Why are we getting the cold shoulder? You'll have to
2: ask the organizers that question. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. The city would have to pe- agree to put up some funds, I would expect, and, and although I don't recall that coming to us. Um, you know, we just hosted the Pan Am Games, and uh, they were a great success, but it puts a lot of tension on the municipality to do that and a lot of cost, particularly around the, the security side. And... Uh, you know i i've looked forward, more forward to the two great cups that uh, the tiger cats promised that they would bring to us if we built the stadium and that's what i'd like to see us focus on uh, just get the great cup back in hamilton because that's a, an exciting event and 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 uh, possibility you know, maybe not this year that the
1: tiger cats could uh, could be in that game which would be fun yeah but by that same token then to use that city policy or to re- re- revisit that city policy That's not going to happen until you get this thing settled, because apparently you're not going to do business with the Tiger Cats, and you have to do that uh, if you want to bring a great cup here. So everything's on hold now.
2: That's the resolution City Council. as long as it's it's the Tiger Cats bringing in soccer, if it's somebody else, come talk to us.
1: But Soccer Canada says there won't be anybody else, that they've granted that to Bob Young. Okay. So are you shooting yourselves in the foot here?
2: Uh, Time will tell. I prefer that the two parties get together, settle this thing, so we can move forward.
1: Uh, I don't know if it's any more clear after our conversation, and, and again, I'll reiterate for those that are just joining into the conversation here, uh, that part of this, of course, is, is by legal definition uh, a negotiation, and you're not allowed to talk about that publicly. And uh, uh, mind you, not all councillors abide by those rules, but, uh, but you have traditionally done that, and I understand that. And you are leaving the city liable and open to uh, uh, a much bigger lawsuit if you start throwing numbers around. I get that. And, and I don't think anybody at this stage wants to negotiate in public but uh, I, I, I just I share the frustration, and I've talked to people on both sides of this issue. I guess all three sides of this issue, and and they can't uh, seem to understand why people can't seem to get their heads together on this. I and can't, and I, and
2: in fact, Bill, we can't understand it either. And and uh, you know I. I I just wish I could share with you the numbers because you have a whole different view, but I can't. But but the, but
1: you understand how some people are looking at this, Lloyd, and saying, here we go again. There just seems to be this antagonistic attitude between the city and this football team. And it started way back when with stadium location, stadium construction, and it's going on and on and on. And some of the same players are involved in this. And I don't mean the football players. I'm talking about the politicians and the business people. And it's uh, it's giving the city a black eye.
2: Well, yeah, I can tell you, I spent thirty two years in the private sector. The same thing happens there and but but it's not in public. it's done in the boardroom. And uh, we don't discuss legal issues externally. In the private sector, uh, you can't. Your lawyers will tell you you'll impair your position in trial. If you do that, we have to respect what they say. And, and it's not just this situation. I think it's every legal situation that anybody's ever been involved with. The lawyers will always tell you you can't discuss it. And, and I'll repeat it again. The same thing is with investigations of the police department. Could you imagine if we had been talking like the media wanted us to and the public wanted us to do about the progress of the investigation for the uh, uh, the Bosma trial? And and but when it all come out of trial, you understood it, you know, because the crown attorney did a great job using the police investigation to roll it all out chronologically, all new, so the public and the and particularly the jury knew the information. Same thing happens here. Just be patient; it'll all come out, and it'll all be fine.
1: Yeah. Okay, I get that, and and we'll leave that at that message. The only frustration that I'm feeling, and and I quite frankly, I'm feeling from an awful lot of people, Lloyd. Is that the world is passing us by while well, this is all happening? Uh, you know, they're, 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 we're talking about World Cup, and Hamilton's not involved in that. We're talking about a soccer team, and it looks like that may not happen now. And people are just thinking, why can't we get our act together? And I'm not blaming you for it, but somebody's, well, last time heads rolled because people got ticked off with the way things were being done. And there is an election coming up next year, so who knows how that's going to happen. Anyway,
2: I'll yeah, we'll, we'll explain it all to the public, then, and I fully expect this thing will be settled before the next election anyway.
1: You'll have a platform to say that once you get some numbers. Thanks for the time today, Lloyd. Okay, thanks, Bill. Appreciate Bye-bye. it. That's uh, Lloyd Ferguson, of course, the uh, chairman of the stadium subcommittee. And, uh, well, I don't know. I'd I, I like to see some of those numbers, too. But those stories are still out there. Those rumors are still out there that it's not the Tiger Cats, that it's the city that seems to be holding things up here. And uh, nobody seems to want to confirm nor deny that at this stage. But in the meantime, you know, everybody else seems to be doing fine. Uh, Getting stadiums, getting great cups, getting soccer teams. Hamilton on the outside looking in again.
3: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900
0: CHML.
1: Everybody yesterday, including the late night show uh, hosts, were all talking about uh, President Donald Trump. Uh, At a press conference he held yesterday, he backtracked once again, reverting back to his original comments on Saturday and uh, the tragedy, of course, that occurred in Charlottesville, saying that it was the fault of many sides. Uh, Yeah, this is kind of reiterating what he had mentioned on Saturday. Here's a little bit of what happened there.
3: You had a group on one side that was bad, and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent, and nobody wants to say that.
1: And on and on and on it went. Uh, Trump also went on to uh, defend Steve Bannon uh, from Breitbart, of course, uh, who's now a member of his staff. Uh, he mentioned his winery in Charlottesville. Always, of course, the uh, has to get the plug in for the Trump businesses. And he actually said that race relations have gotten much better during his presidency. Um, it had some people shaking their heads, uh, many people condemning Trump for his comments and for his characterization of the people that... Uh, Uh, were affected. Uh, Still no mention, by the way, of course, of of the terrorist attack. And although he tried to defend himself once again, it just went on and on and on. Uh, One of the few people that did uh, tweet uh, support for this was David Duke, the former head of the Ku Klux Klan, who said that uh, he praised Trump. Of course, Duke has uh, previously been quoted as suggesting that the reason for the uh, the alt-right and the white supremacist uh, movement and uh, the actions in Charlottesville the other day were to carry out Trump's agenda. Those are David Duke's words. Let's bring George Breckenridge into the conversation, retired political science professor at McMaster University. George, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us on the program today.
3: Oh, that's fine, Bill, yeah. Uh,
1: I, 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 I'm lost for words to try to describe what what we see here. Yeah. Uh, I know there was criticism of Trump for not getting in on this and not... Condemning uh, neo-Nazism and white supremacy, it took him 48 hours to get into that. He read a prepared statement after that. Yeah, uh, that got tossed out the window yesterday. What were you thinking as you were watching this yesterday?
3: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it it, it was uh, you, you know, there's been one sort of jaw-dropping incident with Trump after another. It's hard to know. You kind you of you run out of adjectives. I mean, it was astonishing, really. I mean, particularly, yeah, and his staff who were standing behind him, you know, were obviously shocked. And You know, he wasn't supposed to be doing any of this. You know, they've been trying to rein him in. And the statement he made on the Monday was clearly, as somebody said, it was like a hostage, you know, reading a hostage note. You know, he clearly was unwilling, you know, unwilling to do this. So he sort of unleashed uh, or became unhinged. And just the whole thing came flooding out. And so the, if you like the real Donald Trump, you know, what he really feels about all of these things is very clear. And it's, it's really quite astonishing.
1: Well, and therein lies, the, I, I think, the greater concern here. Uh, because the staff were saying, yeah, we didn't think he was actually going to make any off-the-cuff com- right. or off the cuff comments. Right. And so they're saying, well, he went rogue. It's not that he went rogue. It's what he said. He, well, he was speaking from the heart
3: absolutely. I think, you know, this this is clearly his, you know, what he, how he responds to what happened in Charlottesville. And the fact that he sees no, that he's willing to make a kind of a moral equivalency between, I mean, the the Charlottesville, what was really alarming about Charlottesville. I mean, there've been all kinds of demonstrations and whatnot, people protesting the removal of the Confederate statues. That's one thing. But to see these, these neo-Nazis you know, giving Hitler salutes and with these uh, torchlight parades and all the and the slogans and all the, and the anti-Semitic stuff coming out again, all the apparatus that, you know, if you, we've watched, you know, historic films of the Nazis in Germany in the 1930s, it really was quite alarming, the scale of it as well. You know, it wasn't just a, a little bunch of guys. It was a whole, you know, I don't know how many it was, but it looked like thousands of people and to to even make a moral equivalency between that and and uh, the people who are protesting against that, and some you know some of them you know it does involve violence on both sides, i suppose, but to put to put the two things on the same moral basis is just incredible
1: yet he did it uh he did it on Saturday, he did it again yesterday yeah. so so clearly that's that's where his head's at in this whole issue
3: well it is i mean he i think he, Trump is a man with no moral compass at all none you know during he, he early on after he was inaugurated he gave a, an interview and it was i thought it was really interesting although people didn't make a lot of it at the time he said um he was finding governing harder than he expected because he said it involved a moral dimension he said unlike business so he, what he meant was he had never taken moral, you know, he wouldn't know moral concern if it dripped over. it. I mean, in his business, and the way he conducted his business, the way he conducted his private life, clearly indicates a total amoral, you know, lack of any kind of moral dimension at all. And so that's who he is. He simply doesn't get (laughs) why people are so horrified to see these neo-Nazis marching like that.
1: Well, and he's got his defenders. We mentioned David Duke, of course, and, and... Uh, And, of course, the friends at Fox News uh, are behind him 100% on this, and and I guess that's not to be surprising.
3: Well, there was one Fox News panel who really ripped into him, actually, which was interesting. Uh, One of the panel, uh, I just saw the clip the woman said, this is disgusting, you know, you know, and you don't usually get that from Fox News on Trump.
1: Well, here's the thing, I, I, you know, the, the Fox personalities are the ones that are lying up behind him and always have. They, they, yeah. they like lemmings, they just kind of blindly follow along behind Trump. But, yeah. but it, you're right when they bring other folks on there. Uh, and the the point I Rupert, wanted to make here, in this case, George, this is not a liberal versus conservative, uh, a Democrat no. versus Republican thing, no, because no. some of Trump's harshest critics where people like Bill Kristol, who's a, a very, oh, very yeah. conservative guy, Charles Krauthammer, who apparently is on Fox an awful lot of the time, yeah. very conservative columnist, yeah. uh, he condemned the, Trump's actions absolutely. and Trump's words and called it deplorable.
3: Yes, absolutely. No, the conservative commentary, you know, the commentators from, from, uh, who've been conservatives in the leading newspapers and the television channels, have all, from the very beginning, I mean, they have never warmed to Trump at all. They have always attacked him. And so they have been some of the most scathing uh, denunciations of Trump again on this have come from people like George Will or Charles Krauthammer, arch conservatives, the very conservative guys. You've been doing this a long time. It's amazing I, even to find even anybody on Fox News. The other thing is Richard Rupert Murdoch is now the, the people are watching the New York Post, which is Murdoch's paper in New York, which has been a populist paper in New York and which has been a very you know avid trump supporter and that is now move, moving away from him. So if you lose the support of Rupert Murdoch who's a very canny political operator, you know, he basically goes where the money is and where the where the, where the majority is. Um Trump is in you know he he'll have nobody left very quickly.
1: But but you you raised a very interesting point about this that, uh, the you know, the Tucker and Carlson's and, and these that are going to support uh, Trump no matter what he says, no matter what he well, does. Well, yeah, people like they're, that. They're, yeah. trying this, they're trying to make this a political issue. This is a moral issue. And and well, that's, and, and and that's first of all, Trump has no experience in politics. Clearly, he has very little to no experience when it comes to moral issues, either.
3: Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I think he has no... He's never, ever, for whatever happened to when he was growing up, or whatever it was, you know, when most people get their moral ideas from their parents and the school and their church and that sort of thing. He, somehow, he missed out on the whole thing. I, I, there's just nothing there. You don't get any sense that he has any kind of moral concerns at all, or even ra- understands them. And so, the fact that—and of course, the other thing is—that's that part of what lay behind his. I mean, his campaign was really the most disgraceful campaign uh, ever in America, just about. I think. And so, his willingness to accept support, and or, you know, rather than repudiate, which every other. You know, mainstream Republican, whatever candidate would do that he's willing to accept the report, the support rather of these white nationalists and, and and David Duke and people like that. He's never been willing to clearly separate himself from them, and he just, in addition to the political calculation, oh, this is part of his base, you know, that's all he's got, and so he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to offend them. Uh, but it's, it's it's as you say, it's a lack of a, a moral understanding.
1: There's there's a, a side to this that I find very interesting because we live obviously in the era of the internet and social media now, and and history is is a, a click away. We can find things that yeah. that uh, heretofore probably were a little more difficult. Yeah. and and some of the staunchest supporters of of civil rights. Uh, that would never do this. Uh, we're Republicans. I mean, this is oh, not just mm-hmm. well, Obama, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, of course, way back in the 1950s. Uh, you know, worked towards uh, towards integration and not segregation. Yeah. Uh, the the speech I'm sure you've seen the clip from Ronald Reagan from a number of years ago, where he vilified uh, neo Nazis and yeah. said they have no mm-hmm. place there. The problem in the in this country. And on and on it goes, and, and and other presidents have done similar situations. George W. Bush trying to assuage the concerns that people had about the Muslim faith after nine eleven, yeah. and right. and you juxtapose that with Donald Trump's statement that That's basically right. are are well, let's face it, let, let's talk about the impact it's having. They're dividing this country and in, in, in this 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 nation that uh, that was supposed to be coming together. I mean, he always talked about making America great again. He's making America hate again.
3: Well, that's right. I mean, that's the way he ran his campaign, and that's what he consistently does, by appealing to the worst. You know, it's one thing, you know, what he, what he did, which other Republicans failed to pick up on soon enough, was to identify the fact that there was this large constituency, mostly in the Republican Party, but some Democrats, who were, who were anxious about their status, mostly white, working class, not very well-educated people, and uh, the Republican Party was, and the Democrat Party were no longer talking to these people. That's one thing. He identified that constituency and he played to it, but he did it in the worst possible way. You know, he did it rather than by reaching out a hand to them and saying, "We understand you. We're going to help you." That sort of thing. Instead of that, he played on the, he played up their fears and their prejudices and everything else, and that's just been a very divisive factor. And uh, one of the one of the sad things about the whole episode, as you say, the Republican Party, you know, has a has a good record on all of this in the past. They really do. The only black spot for the Republican Party, the only big mistake that they made was was Barry Goldwater. Yeah. Who went on and a lot of other issues was 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 pretty good. Was, you know, was okay. But uh, by v- voting against the Civil Rights Act, that was a terrible mistake because it it threw away. The party of Lincoln tradition, it really did, and since that time, the Republican Party has had to struggle to sort of redeem itself in many ways on, on the whole issue of race, who, you know, which lies at the center of all of this. The the other thing that's worth commenting on is, in the the American president is not only the political head; he's the head of state. He's the head of state. You know, the Queen, the Governor General. And the the only role that the head of state has is to bring people together to speak for the nation, you know. And he is completely, and all the others, Democrats and Republicans, have done that often very well. Reagan did it very well. Clinton did it well. Obama did it well. Um, he's completely incapable of doing that. He's a divisive figure, and he's incapable of, of speaking in any kind of broad, unifying way at all.
1: The argument, of course, and, and what. The neo Nazis and the supremacists that were rallying and, 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 and marching in uh, in Charlottesville. This was about this Robert e. Lee and Robert Lee Lee Park and and, and yeah. of course the statue itself. Yeah. And and that seems to be the the flashpoint for them to, to suggest that uh, and and Trump referenced it yesterday that the, the taking down of the statue and the renaming of the park to Emancipation Park yeah. instead of Robert e. Lee Park was in some way uh, defiling uh, America's heritage and America's history. Uh, not seemingly understanding at all, George, that uh, that Civil War and the reasons for that Civil War were the blight on American history. Yeah,
3: Yeah. well, I think the interesting thing about the statue, and a lot lot of these statues apparently across the South and other places, is they don't go back to the Civil War. They don't go back to that era at all. They go back to the 1920s, what was happening in the 1920s, was the previous period where you have have a, a backlash against the way America was changing, against all these immigrants. In this case, it was Catholic immigrants and Jewish immigrants from Southern Europe and things like that, and you have you have a cumulative backlash, which led to you know limiting immigration and that sort of thing. And a lot of these statues went up, were apparently put up in that period, because you get the you know you get the white majority seeing the Confederacy, you know, which was all about maintaining white supremacy, obviously, um, as, as, as adopting that as a symbol. And so these statues, and the other period when you get a backlash is during the civil rights era, and that's when the stars and bars, that's when that flag became a symbol. Not really before that at all. It became a symbol of resistance to civil rights um, in the 1960s. So, so what we've got at the minute, you see, what what Trump uh, found and played upon and stirred up. Was the feeling among a lot of better, not so, mostly not so well-educated, rural, small-town white working-class people, who admittedly are often in very difficult economic s- situation, uh, the, the sense that America was changing away from them, uh, so their white their their status as a white person was no longer relevant. America was changing, and so we're in a period of backlash, and uh, which has occurred at other periods historically. Uh, like, you know, in the, in the civil rights era in the 1920s, and but Trump has played on that, encouraged it, and stirred it up. Rather than trying to act to calm it and be a unifying factor, he's done exactly the opposite. And in the short run, he won, you know, but uh, in the long run, he can't. You know, this is a battle he can't win.
1: <laughs> and again, that historical perspective is such an important part of this discussion, and yeah. it's something that he seemed to want to gloss over. Uh, well, and like, and he, he
3: doesn't know it. I mean, he doesn't—he doesn't know very much, to be honest. He doesn't know American history well at all.
1: Well, and what Robert E. Lee stood for, well, uh, yeah, and exactly. and what some of these other individuals exactly. stood for, and and the fact that that what happened uh, with the the renaming of the park and the taking down of the statue yeah. in Charlottesville is actually happening in towns and and states actually right across. Uh, many of the southern states, and has been for about the last 18 months to 24 months well, right now, without incident.
3: New Orleans removed a whole lot of them. Baltimore removed four of them overnight last night, apparently. So they, they just they just did it overnight without telling. what I, I mean, what the, the, I did. think
1: the most telling subtext of this is I watched the coverage on Saturday, what was going on in Charlottesville. Yeah. And, of course, they had reporters all over the place talking to uh, to the protesters. And, and there was one... Uh, Obviously, I, I don't know if he was a national, you know, not, I, he was on that side anyway, protesting this whole thing. Yeah. He, only, he identified himself as Ted, he wouldn't give his last name. And his statement just it, it floored me. He basically said, I'm getting tired of black people pushing me around. And That goes right to the heart of what these guys were there for. Yeah, it had nothing right. at all to do with rights. It had to do with the fact that there are people that have different color skin and they don't like them.
3: Well, but not only that, because they see them becoming a majority in America, which, I mean, not just black, you know, not, not just African-Americans, but obviously uh, Hispanics and things like that. And they see this happening. It has already happened in many ways, in many respects. And they feel, you know, they feel left out. Now, the, the neo-Nazis are only a small segment of that. Most of them are not, you know, not these kind of not neo-Nazis at all but it's 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 a that's the basis of their feeling that they're being bypassed and the white civilization quote unquote or western civilization or whatever you want to call it is somehow disappearing in america and i mean this is this is a very very narrow um, ahistorical understanding of what america has always been about
1: what's going to happen we got about a minute left here what what's the fallout from this george
3: well, the, the dilemma is really with the Republican Party. I mean, I had a talking to a colleague of mine saying, well, surely now the Republicans are going to remove him. But the problem is, what can you do? You know, there are only two ways to remove him. One is impeach him, and the other way is to use the 25th Amendment, which is to get a declaration that he's unfit for office. And you can't there – is. there is no – real basis for doing that. And the Republicans are just not in that position to do that. They have been moving away from it very clearly since the over the summer. And uh, he has really no clout in Washington at all with the Republican Party in terms of their legislative agenda. He has virtually no clout at all. They realize he's no use. And, and they're not afraid of him anymore. But nevertheless, it's a real dilemma for the conservatives, for the Republicans, because you know his takeover, his winning the nomination was a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. That's what it was, and they 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 were unable to resist it, <laughs> and so they're stuck with him. And inevitably, you know, they've got Trump hanging around their neck. And what do you, but what do you do? You know, you're going to see them increasingly uh, already um, moving away from him, denouncing him, and disagreeing with him, and and dis- differentiating themselves from him. But that's you know. That's pretty feeble, but in terms of removing him, I just don't see there's the basis for it at this point.
1: George Breckinridge, uh, retired political science professor at McMaster. George, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today.
3: Oh, you're welcome. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900
0: CHML.
1: In the last couple of days, we were talking about the uh, Ontario government's uh, minimum wage uh, recommendations and policies that they, they say they will be enacting. Yesterday, you heard um, the Ontario minister uh, responsible for this, of course, Kevin Flynn, on our program, and also the Ontario Chamber of Commerce weighed in on this. Um, And uh, there was a report that came out that both uh, guests commented on, of course, uh, from a quote-unquote independent group that suggests that this is going to have a serious negative impact on the Ontario economy when they raise this minimum wage up to 15 bucks. So I wanted to bring Tom Cooper into the argument and into the discussion here. The uh, director for the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, he joins us here in studio to uh, talk about uh, some of those statements made uh, by the report, certainly, and by some of those that seem to have, I was going to say opposition. First of all, thanks for coming in here, Tom. Good to see you, Bill. Uh, Because everybody who who talks about this in in a negative context, such as the, the Ontario Chamber, none of them say they're opposed to this. No, They all say, this is a good idea, it's just happening too much too soon they're really kind of couching their comments on this because I don't think anybody wants to go on record as saying we don't think people that are making below subsistence wages should get any more money. We just don't (laughs) think they should get it now, that's all. I guess that's supposed to make them feel better.
0: I suppose it is, but, you know, the fact remains that workers have been languishing for the last, really, two decades in, in low-wage jobs. And there was a really good report out yesterday from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives that showed the lowest-earning workers were falling further and further behind. And it's time, it's time to turn the tide. It, it's time to give those workers uh, a fair shot at earning a decent living and being able to not only save for their futures, but uh, as well ensure that they can meet all their basic needs. And $15 an hour will help do that. It's it's not $15, because we've done these calculations locally right across Ontario. $15 an hour is is pretty frugal. Um, It doesn't cover everything. And we know here in Hamilton, a living wage is a little bit higher than that at $15.85. And we know it enables people to to meet their basic needs like housing and being able to purchase food, um, but it also allows a little bit of civic participation too, and enabling people to maybe get out and volunteer once in a while. But one of the most important things about uh, paying a higher minimum wage is, is the ability for workers, particularly those with families, to have more time with their kids. Uh, Right now, there are far too many workers out there working two, three, four part-time jobs uh, scheduled at erratic hours. They they just don't have time to be at home with their kids and and have that quality family time that we all need. And I think a $15 minimum wage might enable people to maybe work one or two uh, of those jobs and, and be able to really spend that quality time with their family. I think it'll help society immensely
1: a couple of things that have come up over the last couple of days that I want to get your read on here uh the uh, the metro departments or grocery store chain has has come up to this and and they've they've done some of their cost estimates on this, and they say if when this goes up to fifteen bucks an hour, it's going to cost i think they said oh, something like thirty million dollars some outlandish number uh it was going to have a ne- negative impact on their business. but there have been other businesses that have said the same thing if If you were to follow that and I'm not one who's prone to hyperbole, but i'm going I'm just going to draw an analogy here if I could. You you heard our discussion when you were driving into the studio today in the previous segment with uh, George Breckenridge talking about Trump uh, and and what was going on in the South and 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 those at the on the the alt right uh, the neo Nazis and the uh, etc that were defending Robert E Lee in the Civil War wasn't that the same argument that the southern states gave that oh. if you take away our slaves we're not our economy will collapse oh i and, and don't get I'm not suggesting no. that people are slaves oh don't
0: get me but what I'm saying was it's a false argument yeah history is replete with those sorts of arguments coming from business if interests. you don't allow
1: us to pay yeah. a a crappy wage to these people then my business is not is not going to survive exactly I'm sorry
0: that's a that's a, a lousy argument to try to make here a- and and you're right 150 years ago that was the the argument coming from the business owners, the slave owners in the southern U.S., that the economy would collapse. A hundred years ago, uh, even here in Ontario, it was coming from business owners saying, well, we need child labor. We need 11 and 12-year-old boys working in the factories because otherwise the economy will collapse. Fifty years ago, it was business owners saying, no, we can't have health and safety standards. It'll cost too much money. You know, workers will just have to be, try to be careful without the proper safety equipment. All those arguments were blowing out the window. Dental plans? We're not
1: offering drug plans of and <laughs> exactly.
0: dental plans. That's ridiculous. We'll go out of business.
1: Exactly. And, and, and you know what? Maybe some did at some point when those things were instituted, but but the, the work environment, our society in general, is better as a result. And and I got to tell you, uh, I'm a consumer. You're a consumer, mm-hmm. I, and nobody wants to pay more for anything. All right? I, for gasoline, for food, for anything else. I get that, but I don't have a problem if there's a four percent increase in what I go to buy at a grocery store for instance if I know that that's going into the pocket of that person who's uh, who's running the cashier in exactly. the cashier and, register and, and, or, the, or the person that's stocking the shelves it's not going to line somebody's pockets in some corporate head office someplace it's making sure that person there can buy some of the stuff that they're ringing through the
0: cashier. Exactly and, and coming from the CEO of Metro uh, Grocery Stores Inc um, as, as one local Twitter user noted, Crimea river, you know this is a guy who's making th- more than three million dollars a year and complaining about his employees uh, earning $15 an hour. Uh, You know, I shop at Metro sometimes on on Upper James, and I see those workers in there. You know, they're working hard. uh, They're doing their very best. But I I can tell they're struggling, and, and they have challenges in their lives. You know, we deserve uh, to ensure that everybody who's working uh, has an opportunity to get a better start at life and, and to really earn what they deserve. And we know when workers are earning a little bit money, more money, they're more productive. Uh, there's less sick time. There's less absenteeism. There's less turnover as well. So I think a lot of these CEOs will be surprised uh, when they see the results of a higher wage. Uh, they'll see employees who are who are happier, working, uh, who are coming in more often because because they're not getting sick because they can't afford the medication uh, either for themselves or, or maybe for a sick kid. And and there's some value to that in terms of maybe paying a couple cents more for a coffee if you know the person on the other end of the counter is able to go home and buy medication for a sick child. There's a value to that, uh, uh, to me, from a moral perspective, but there's also an economic argument, because we know that's going to cost taxpayers less in terms of potential costs to the health care system. Um, so I think minimum wage increases are a win-win-win. They're a win for the workers, certainly. Uh, we think it's a win for the businesses as well because they're going to be more productive, and and we're going to also see a win for communities because when workers have more money, that's money that's spent locally on local goods and services, and it's helping to drive economic growth. Well, there's a, there's a,
1: a financial reality here that I think we have to discuss as part of this as well. Uh, when governments, for instance, give tax breaks to the rich, uh, like Donald Trump wants to do and 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 subsequent, you know some conservative governments have done that in the past too. invariably when when they the, that elk people get more money, they end up well, they don't buy things with it. They don't stuff it back into the economy. It's in offshore investments. They put it in bank accounts on the Cayman Islands. I mean, I don't know what they do with it because uh, I, I, who knows. But, when you start putting more money into the pockets of somebody who's making 12 bucks an hour, they spend it. Exactly. They spend it, they go to the grocery store, they go and maybe get a cup of coffee, uh, they they buy more, maybe prescription drugs as you mentioned. That money's going right back into the economy again. Exactly. And the CEO of... Which is going to help Metro, by the way. Yeah, exactly. And Tim Hortons and everyone else.
0: Exactly. The CEO of Metro should actually be the biggest booster of increasing the minimum wage, because there's lots of minimum wage workers out there right now who are forced to go to food banks because they can't afford the basic necessities. If they had a little bit more money in their pockets, they'd be going to their grocery stores. They'd be going to the metros and no frills and Fortinos and, and being able to purchase uh, the groceries, healthy groceries, hopefully, um, that they need uh, to say, stay healthy and, and, and feed their families. So- I don't
1: know if your grocery store has this, but I, I, I've been to it two or three around the area that do there's always a little bin right there by the cash register for food banks to make donations. Mm-hmm. You know, you can spend five bucks, fifteen bucks, or twenty bucks. I think it is, and there's there's a, a basket of goods that you can buy, and you simply put it into the bin. and And uh, mission services or Good Shepherd, depending on the agency, they come and pick these up on a pretty regular basis. Why isn't the CEO of Metro asking how many of his employees actually have to use that? Yeah, exactly. They don't, a, they don't take it right out of the store, but how many of them see that and cash that stuff out and then at the end of the shift or maybe sometime later that week, they have to go to that food bank and get some of that food out because they don't have enough money. Yeah, and why isn't a,
0: he talking about that? There was a report out last year uh, where Walmart did just that. They held a food drive for their own employees, not recognizing that they were paying poverty wages to these folks, and that's why they had to or maybe they did realize it but that's why they had to use food banks because they simply weren't earning enough at their jobs and and that's having a huge cost to society as well and we know when workers aren't earning enough they're certainly going to not be as healthy but they're going to use more government services as well and if you don't have enough to make ends meet you might have to supplement your income with uh, additional social assistance uh, to ensure your family can stay housed and 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 stay fed and so that's having a cost to society as well so you know, again, I think the arguments that these, you know, multimillionaire CEOs are making just don't hold water. Um, Certainly, they want to hold their profit levels and and they want their big beach houses and and they want, you know, their vacations in in Switzerland, etc. But you know, they can still have that, I think, and still pay a decent wage, and ensure that society is better as a result. Yeah,
1: and but to be fair, look at—I I don't want to be dismissive of some of these concerns because not everybody is a—you a, a, know—a three million dollar CEO. Uh, some of these businesses are, are, are at a pretty low profit margin right now because of the way things are, and they're local businesses, and people will put their old blood, sweat, and tears into them. And I understand that concern. I get that. But the argument that if I if I raise the minimum wage, uh, that my business is going to be negatively impacted, if you want to say that that's, that's the strongest argument here... Then then why would we ever raise it? I mean, why are we just paying fifteen cents an hour instead? Uh yep. it, it has gone up incrementally over the last number of years and businesses have survived. They've they've had to make a combination. Mm-hmm. Do prices go up? Sure they do. Yep. But they, they go up anyway. They so do. I'd I'd rather that happen. I, you know, like I say, I'd rather pay that extra if I know it's gonna go and help somebody else that can actually get by as well. You know, it, it, we you know it's one thing to say yeah I'm gonna put a few extra bucks into that for that agency over there well why don't you help a person who's right t- standing right there because they're impacted by this that's what we call the working poor yeah exactly and nobody the, seems to want to talk about that the, the This, vast, you know how we always say that these are nameless faceless people look at a face because that may be one of them right there that you're talking to
0: they are and the vast majority of people who are working at low wages actually aren't working in those small businesses of, of 10 or less it, it's actually in the larger the larger companies um, but I know it's it's going to be challenging for some small businesses, and, and many many have adapted. At the sem- same time, I think we had to realize that businesses had a choice. They could have paid a little bit higher wages. Um, we've been talking about living wage for a number of years now and, and saying Ontario's minimo- minimum wage simply isn't enough. Um, they could have started making steps years ago uh, to improve wages. Um, many have and and we have great examples here in in Hamilton uh, where we have small businesses who are living wage employers and they're doing great and um, we've talked about them before cake and loaf and mustard seed co-op and number of others Um, but I think small businesses will find and, and this example is borne out not just here in Canada but in the United States and the United Kingdom when living wages are paid uh, those businesses do do better, and, and there's much more of a cohesive sense of of uh, welcoming and, and solidarity within uh, a small business. And employees want to stay; they want to help it succeed. And I think we'll see that with the fifteen dollars minimum. One of
1: the other arguments is the domino effect, and and some businesses have talked to me about that as well, Tom. Saying, "Look at, I'm paying these guys twelve bucks an hour right now. When it goes up to fifteen, that three dollar an hour increase." The, the the person who's making seventeen and eighteen bucks an hour is gonna want a three dollar increase as well. Yep. And I said you don't have to give it to them unless unless it states in the working agreement that they need to make three dollars more than the minimum wage. And I said, I bet it doesn't. Yeah. If they're making eighteen bucks an hour now and it's raised to fifteen, that's their own darn business. I mean th- you still pay them eighteen bucks. If they don't like that, they can go get a job someplace else. Yeah. It's it's a it's a really it's a it's a, a very specious argument to suggest that all people's wages are going to go up if you raise the minimum wage. That's not it at all, and that's not the intent.
0: And I I think what we really need to do is is really trying to shrink the uh, inequality gap, and, and that's really the issue right now. And and the report from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives yesterday bore this out that there's lots of people at the bottom who are earning far too little and there's a smaller group of people at the top who are, who are earning enough and, and they're very comfortable. We need to shrink the gap between the two. And I think when we look at societies around the globe uh, that have that lower level of inequality, um, whether it's uh, the Scandinavian countries or, or, or other countries, um, they're, they're much more productive. Uh, they're happier as well. When you look at that happiness index that just came out a little while ago, it's all those countries that have lower inequality. And uh, I, I think increasing the minimum wage so that everybody uh, can feel that they not only have a equal footing but, but belong and, and can can succeed in society is quite important.
1: Got about a minute left here. Uh, in 60 seconds, I want you to address this because some are suggesting that, look at good idea. But they're trying to do it in a far too tight a time frame. Uh, Alberta did this, I think, over four years, three years, something like that. Mm-hmm. This is 18 months. Uh, and, and saying that's just that's a little bit too much.
0: Yeah. And I've heard that from small business as well. And I know there's going to be a lot of pressure on the government to reduce the uh, time to implementation of the $15 minimum wage. But workers have been behind the eight ball for so long now. And it's not just about low wages this bill uh, is also about fair scheduling. It's about ensuring that uh, people have the benefits that they need to, to succeed. And, and I think, again, when we've calculated living wages across Ontario, they're much higher than the $15 minimum wage in most cases. And really, it's what workers need uh, to survive and, and to thrive. And, and so I think that's what uh, we'll continue
1: to push. Tom Cooper for the, uh, of course, uh, Roundtable for uh, Poverty Reduction, uh, the director of that agency. Uh, Thanks, as always, for this. We'll see how this rolls out in the next few months.
0: Thanks, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.